If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says, at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. The talent for so many players today, the talent in the spotlight, it's taking them to heights that their character's not strong enough to support. I'm one of those set goals, chief goals. I talked about faith, passion, obviously the drive with the guys that I've been around and the guys that surround me every single day. If I want to be one of the best, I've got to play with and against the best. Okay, so that which gets praised gets repeated. You're listening to The Hardwood Hustle, brought to you by PGC Basketball. Players, do you need to make next season your best season ever? Or are you tired of putting in all the hours in the gym and not getting the results you deserve? Thousands of players attend PGC camp every year to discover how to think the game, be a playmaker, and run the show. We'll send you back to your team a smarter player, a better playmaker, an improved leader, and better equipped to foster a championship culture next season. I've had many of my own college players attend a PGC camp, and it's always had a huge impact on them on and off the court. You can go to pgcbasketball.com to find a camp near you. That's pgcbasketball.com. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Hardwood Hustle. I'm your host, Adam Bradley, alongside TJ Rosine. Before we jump into today's episode, let's catch up with our friends over at Shot Tracker. Our friends over at Shot Tracker are changing the game with their new revolutionary technology that is making basketball more efficient and effective at all levels. Shot Tracker is made up of three components there's a Shot Tracker enabled ball, player sensors, and anchors in the rafter. And combining them all gives you high level, detailed analytics to be able to track everything your players are doing, spacing, movement, shot efficiency. It's absolutely incredible. Check out ShotTracker.com to learn more about how you can get connected to ShotTracker and begin changing the game for your team. TJ, I want to take a few minutes here as we go through today's episode, and I want to pick your brain on how you manage your rotations. And and I think this will be a helpful episode for coaches that as they're trying to figure out the art of managing the rotation, just some principles, some guidelines, some different insight and perspective on how they can best manage their rotations. You talked to a lot of different coaches. There's different thought processes. There's there's thought processes that in the beginning, you know, maybe you want to go with a, a bigger rotation to kind of see what you've got, right, to give in individuals opportunities and, and, and experiment with different variable, uh, various rotations. But then there's some thought of, you know, I need to, you know, kind of hone in and we need to start building that chemistry and I need to kind of keep it tight and, and, and see which of my guys are going to be my, my guys or which of my girls are going to be my girls moving forward and, and I need to understand what I've got early. Let, let's just kind of go high level, like, the general philosophy early in the season for you, TJ, is what? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question for coaches to have to think through, Adam, because, um, I, I, you know, I've almost 20 years of head college coaching experience, and I feel like this is what I'm still trying to figure out. Um, when I look back on the way we've managed rotations in the past, I don't know whether I should change it or not. And here's the reason I don't know why I should change it is because our teams have really peaked, um, especially over the last 10, 15 years in the second half of the season. And I've always said, you know, basketball is a tournament game and you want to be peaking at the end. And that's what we've tended to do. We've, you know, won some, you know, conference championships, tournament championships, national championships, and we're playing good basketball. And at last second half of the season, our win percentage is really, really, really high. And so eventually we get to that point 
where I figure we got the rotations down pretty good. The flip side of that is, is we're not always the best starting team, and we haven't always, um, you know, done done great early in the season. And I do question often whether that has a lot to do with how we have done and how we have played rotations. So. I can tell you what we've done in the past is that we have been patient through scrimmages, through early games, um, and played a new number of people. And then when we get towards the second half of the season, that rotation shrinks. We get down to the guys, the best rotations, the best players. Um, playing time goes up for some guys, down for some guys for sure. Um, and we continue to, you know, that's when we start to kind of hit our stride is when we start to narrow down what's your job, what's the rotation, and we get a little bit more sound in our rotation. So it's played out well for us over time. Um, however, I sometimes wonder, gosh, would it be better for us to get into that rotation early so we start better, or would it actually hinder us if we did that and got into our, inter- our rotations earlier? So it's, it's a, Right now, a million-dollar question for us, and one thing we're just working through right now in the preseason. And have you experimented with both, right? You know, have you have you switched it, or, you know, is that something you're actually tangibly thinking about trying? Or, or, or does the early start, you know, getting off to a fast start in the season, does it matter that much to you? You know, I think it really depends what level you coach, where you coach, and what matters at that. So... What we've noticed, um, this is our first full year of Division Two, where we could go to the national tournament. And it was a great year for us. Won the, the conference championship, won the tournament championship, and went to the national tournament for the first time in school. You know, in in, in our history of, of D two, like it's very few schools have ever gone to the national tournament um, in their first year of D two, and so it was a huge accomplishment for us. But here's the here's the thing. Um, we went with that, and at the end, we almost had to win our way in through the conference tournament because some of our early season losses. And so when I look at it going into this year, if we were to get in that large bid, didn't have to put that pressure on us to win the conference, we're going to have to win more early season games. And so um, knowing what I know now, knowing the importance and the rankings of those early season games, it's put a lot more pressure on me to think through the scenario um, if, if we didn't win the conference championship and we wanted to get in at large bid, we need to win those games. So do we need to shrink the rotation earlier? And that's the question that I'm working through and that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Or would it hinder us, you know, on down the road where we didn't find the right guys? We put somebody in a box and we put them on the bench, but they were really the guy that was going to help us to break through. You know, that, that, that's a really, really tough question to answer. How much experimenting are you doing in game? with different rotations or do you kind of leave that and you know for practice for scrimmages kind of preseason that type of thing where you're you know i'm curious to see how these guys are playing together and how much time do you give an experiment before you either pull back and say i'm not going to move forward with it or you know what let's i i I could see some potential with this rotation yeah you know well first of all i think one of the most under estimated uh important decisions we have to make as 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 coaching staff or coaches is what lineups do play the best together you know um in in college and nba there's a lot of analytics on that now you know and 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 it's hard to fight that you know what's what lineups really play the best together and as coaches a lot of times i think we just make the decision on who are our best five players 
and or who's our best player at the one spot, the two spot, three spot, and so on and so on. Um, but my experience has told me that uh, you know there's just certain lineups that are better together and win. And so that is something as as a coach you do have to experiment through. And the question, the million dollar question, is the second million dollar question is. How long do you do that? How long do you experiment with that? And I think that varies. And here's what I think the variation where the variations can come in is, you know, how young are the players? You know, like, is it a freshman that you just know is going to get better and it's going to take some time to work them in there? Is this player a senior and you're trying to find them a role? But gosh, they're just not being able to step up to that role no matter how much you tried. So those are some of the variables that we have to work our way through is, you know, one of them is age and experience because, you know, I got three freshmen this year. I know we need one or two of them to play really well for us. I don't know which one or two we really need to play well. And I don't know how much one of them is going to grow 50%, which one's going to grow 10%. And so how else do you figure that out besides playing through it? And I don't know how to shortcut that process. I want to get into the specifics of your actual team and actually some of the numbers from a traditional standpoint. Uh, before we do, let's catch up with our friends over at Team Snap for a quick halftime break. Thanks to our friends over at Team Snap for today's halftime communication tip. Today I want to talk about the power of our communication when we build it around a theme of celebrating others. I believe when we do that, three things happen in our favor. The first one, it helps create an environment for winning. I think about the teams that do a great job celebrating others and what you find are players who want to fight harder for one another. They want to battle tougher for one another. They feel more empowered. There's a stronger spirit of ownership within the program. They want to give more to the program and to the team. It changes and helps create an environment for winning. Secondly, it raises each player's personal performance. There's often a quote that everyone's familiar with, when you look good, you play good. And although there may be some truth in there, I believe what's more true is when you feel good, you play good. And one of the best ways for us to feel good in a team environment is when we're playing alongside teammates that have our back, that celebrate us, that encourage us. In fact, when we do that, we raise the level of our teammates. So when you think about it in that light, it's almost foolish not to do it. It's an easy way for us to raise the performance of our teammates. And lastly, when we celebrate others in a great way, it takes the focus off of us and puts it onto others. And that is one of the golden rules of teams is that we need to play for each other. Well, when you're celebrating someone else, you're having to think about their accomplishment. You're having to think about the things they've done well and you're communicating those. And in those moments, you're taking the focus off of you. You're thinking about someone else and that's where the focus, which helps create this overall culture that produces winning. Coaches, when you tap into celebrating others and make that a theme of your communication, so much changes in your favor. When you think about it in that way, like I said, it's almost foolish not to create that habit. Thanks to our friends over at Team Snap. Make sure you check out teamsnap.com backslash hustle to learn more about the communication app helping bring teams together all over the country and get everyone organized, serving over 15 million people across the globe. Make sure you check out teamsnap.com backslash hustle. TJ, I know it varies, right, from year to year based on your roster, but traditionally speaking, early in the season, how deep will you go 
uh, as you are feeling out your team, are you going double digits? Are you going 10, 11 deep early in the season and then it shrinks to 7, 8, you know, come crunch time? How far are you going in the beginning part of the season, traditionally speaking? Yeah, you know, one of the the variables there, too, is how, what style you want to play. Um, and so I think style of play matters. And, and this is where coaches can get caught up. You want to play one style of play, and it's going to require you playing 11 to 12 players, uh, but you're only eight deep. And so then you make, have to make a decision. Do I want to change my style, or am I willing to stick to my style and play 9, 10, 11, 12, even though they're not good enough? When you look at major college basketball, and I do this with my players all the time, I show them. You know, when you look at, I mean, there were several times last year when UConn only played six players in the entire game, mm-hmm. or the seventh player got eight minutes. The UConn women, you know, like there. And, and if you look down at uh, somebody like Duke, I mean, they've got three or four uh, McDonald's All Americans that aren't getting in the game. But couldn't and, you argue? Couldn't you argue that that's a risky play, right? Because because at that point you're an injury or two away from. Now having to insert in a an important moment someone who's not prepared because you haven't prepared them and maybe this is a little bit of the art right the art of rotations and substitutions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a uh, it's definitely a risky play, like trying to 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 figure that out. And I think you know you're going to have to somewhat calculate what you think um, you know should happen on down the line. And the other risk of that too is the development of players. You know, if you're playing six or seven players, you know, there's three or four players aren't getting any game experience. So not just what happens within the season, but what happens in the future of your program, the year after that, and the year after that, um, you know, I mean, have guys grow and have guys, I mean, college football, you know, you got a great backup quarterback. They're not getting any reps that game experience. I mean, does that cost you a game or two earlier the following year, which cost you a child at the national championship? I mean, those are really tough questions to answer. I, I tend to go towards, um, playing, you know, eleven to twelve early in the season, and then gearing back to eight to nine um, as the season goes on. That's just kind of been our typical rotation that we've gotten to. Because um, you know, I, I'm a pretty big believer that you need about six or seven starters. You know, like five five guys and you know one or two that can come off the bench, and then I think you need about one or two specialists. So that puts you up to eight or nine. They're going to play more this game and less this game. Um, and, and that's kind of how we get down to our, our nine um, players. And I think players are conditioned better than ever now. And so I think playing 32 minutes in a high school game or 40 minutes in a college game with the media timeouts and all that, I, I think players can play 34 minutes, 32 minutes, you know, where in the past without, well, they can only go hard for this amount of time. But I think players are better conditioned and can go longer these days. And I think you want your best players on the floor. So early in the season, if you are 10, 11, even 12, how many minutes are those at that bottom tier getting on average? Yeah, you know, and, and 11, 12, I'll be honest with you, it's a hard number to manage, right? I mean, there's even from a player standpoint, it can be tough because one game they get 15, the next game they get seven, and then they get, you know, it, it kind of goes back on those bottom guys. I mean, I think, um, you know, we tend to go like that 24 to 28 with the, our very best players, and then we spread, you know, what would be, you know, the extra 16 or 12 out amongst another one to two players. So you're looking at, you know, five guys getting 24 and, you know, 26 minutes. And, and then you got another five getting 12 to 14. And then you divide one of those 12 to 14 up amongst two players to get to 11 to 12. Is there is there value in that? And, and I just want to play from the other side. You know, 
I know from many players and conversations, when they're only getting a few minutes, it's hard for them to get in the flow. It's hard to, to get in the rhythm. Is, is it even valuable for them to go in for just a few minutes? Like, can, is, is that even fair to them? Right, because you're not giving them the the true look. You're right. You know, they they go in and they're just kind of like nervous, right? Because they're only going to touch the ball once or twice. You know, and they can't get into the rhythm and and feel confident. Is it a little bit of a disservice? Would it be better just to maybe go away from it? And unless you could invest maybe ten, twelve minutes to that person and actually give them a fair shot at proving themselves. Yeah, I mean, even like right now, we scrimmage for the first time next Tuesday, and we're kind of plan out minutes and you know one of the things that we're trying to do which is hard even on paper is how can we get this player to five to six minute chunks Mm. rather than two minutes two minutes two minutes you know and uh, just because in a five or six minute chunk you might get a better look at what they're capable of doing um, over the course of the season but then you're trying to manage how do I get this player get used to playing you know 14 minutes a half how do we get that and so there's just a lot of things to manage but I get that from players all the time well you know coach it's hard I'm in there for a minute I got a short leash I got it and you know such is life I mean I don't know it, there's not an easy way to do that I think if you're an NBA team like go, who cares first 12 games go ahead and do that right I mean there's you know 80 whatever games if you're in a shorter high school or college season, it's tougher because those first three or four games could be the difference in your season. And and so um, it, it, there, I don't know another way to do it. I'm not going to say arbitrarily say, hey, well, I'm just going to give you 20 minutes today to get a great look at you or you know, give you 15 minutes to get a great look at you. I, it's a game time decision, whatever's going to help us to win. And I think most coaches are going to divert back to that decision being made on what they feel is going to help to win that game in that moment. So let's talk about the balance of needing to win the game. That is obviously your responsibility as the coach. Any coach, it's the responsibility. But how do you balance the responsibility of winning the game with the human side of thinking, I need to give this guy a shot. This guy's been working so hard. You know, He's so committed. He's been doing all the right things. Like Just emotionally, I feel like I want to play him, right? How does that play in, and does it? You know, are you so stringent and black and white? No, I need to win, and the emotion is not. It doesn't play into the factor during the game. How does that balance? You know, I, I to me, there's two types of situations where you're trying to figure out how to get somebody in the game, and you know, to be honest with you, I know a lot of coaches where it just doesn't factor in. I mean, you're they're just about winning. You know, and it is what it is. And, you know, I think even like in college basketball, there's a very high percentage of coaches that that's what decision they've made and will continue to make. Um, you know, I, I don't say I consider myself like super sensitive, but I love my players. And the more you love your players, the harder it is to not want things to happen well for them, happen to things to go good. You know, so like that's been one of my struggles as a coach. Like I find a particular player that I love. And they've given everything they got and they keep going and, you know, but it's not actually working out for them to be on the court as much as they'd hope. That's really hard because I'm, I'm rooting for them. Like I would root for a child. Like I really want them to play and they're not actually playing, but here's the two scenarios where I think you're trying to figure out how to get a player in the game. One is maybe a young player that you're trying to get a feel for. Like they need reps, they need experience. You want to see if they can beat out so-and-so. 
you know they're continuing to grow. And then there's a veteran player, you know, a junior, senior type player where, man, they might have tapped out a lot of their potential. You kind of know where they stand, but you value what they bring to the team. You know, I'll give you a good example. You know, we had a point guard last year where he was the backup point guard. Um, but he was one of the best kids I've ever coached. He was a phenomenally hard worker. He um, he was very intelligent. He was valedictorian um, of our, our of our uh, school. He was um, the hardest worker on the team. So everybody valued what he brought to the team. But he, he the point guard ahead of him just was a was a really good player. And I mean, and the point guard ahead of him was also a really great guy and all the other stuff too. But he was just a better player. But I wanted for that backup point guard, I wanted him to play. Like I want because I wanted him to know how much I valued everything I brought he brought to the team. Like there was no doubt that what he brought to the team, if he never got into the game, made us better. Like he made people around him better. Like our post player freshman last year probably owes all of his success to that senior point guard because he made him that much better. More than our coaching staff did, he made him better. So I wanted our team to know that I valued that and so one of the things i try to do is find that role like is it you know the middle three minutes of the first half and the middle three minutes of the second half he's going to come in and maybe we're not going to push the pace the same we did with the other point guard is he going to come in and we're going to play a little bit of zone because he's maybe not as good on ball defender or you know whatever we do but i was committed to finding minutes for that player because i wanted the team to say hey i don't just speak about the value of leadership i don't just speak about the value of hard work i reward it and so it was really important for me that he played and he did a good job when he played, but it was really important for me that he played. I think it was really important for the point guard ahead of him that that kid played because he valued so much of what he did um, as well. So I think those are the two types. One, you're trying to fill out a player and are they good enough? How much can they help the team? And two is how do I find a role for somebody that I really value and, and, and how do I get that playing time mixed in there? And how do you communicate the rotations to the players are you actually having intentional conversations i know you are as a staff and it's an ongoing conversation with the staff you know we can't play him in this moment and we, you know we just can't risk putting him in at this moment so you're talking about the rotation as a staff but are you communicating it to the team are you saying we're going eight deep or are you saying hey i've got a spot for you in three minutes in the first three minutes in the second and that's what i'm going with be prepared for that is it ongoing conversation or are you just kind of leave them a little in the dark just to always be prepared and kind of uncertain of what each game is going to look like. Yeah, you know, I mean, every team again is different, but I, I, I err, always err on the side of transparency. I think that's probably one of the best things about our program is that they might not like it, but I think players know where they stand and they like that. And so I think just being really truthful and transparent. And, you know, I, I think I've shared this before on one of the episodes, but I think it's worth repeating is. Uh, an old veteran coach, um, Canadian coach, he had a really good, you know, thing where he had a team meeting and he said, Hey, you know, here's so and so, so and so, and so and so. And he outlines the first five players and said, These are our starters. And then he says, Hey, here's so and so, and so and so. They're the first two players off the bench. They're like second string starters. Like they're right there. We're, we're seven, right? And then he skips on down to number 10, 11, and 12. And he says, Now 10, 11, 12, they're not going to get in the games. They're not going to play a lot. They need to be great teammates, da, 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 all this different kind of stuff. And then he starts to move on, and the, and the players say, hey, what about me, eight and nine? Ah, uh, oh, yeah, okay. Here's where it gets really difficult. 
you know, um, they're more of specialists. There's things that they do. There's nights that, that we might need a zone buster. There's might, nights when we might need a defensive post presence or whatever. And your playing time is really going to vary. You might get 20 this night and five the next night. And that's going to be hard to swallow. These at least 10, 11, 12 know they're not playing, <laughs> you know, and um, one through seven know that they're going to play a pretty good number of minutes. Eight, nine, it's really going to fluctuate. And I think we try and have a conversation like that with our players. Say, hey, these five, six, seven guys, they're kind of set. These bottom three or four guys, look, I just got to be honest with you. It's not happening for you, you know. And then there's those two or three in the middle that, hey, you just need to be aware that tonight we might call your number a whole lot. And tomorrow we might not call your number that much. Do you feel the pressure to play people to keep them in your program? Right? To to give them the minutes because – you don't want people leaving your program. I think that's a real challenge for a lot of players, a lot of coaches around the country, right? And in light of all the transferring that's taking place, where you you've got to manage the egos, you got to keep people happy, and and now all of a sudden now that may be influencing your rotation, even though it may not be best for the team. But you don't want to run the risk of upsetting, or all of a sudden now having a parent chime in, and you're trying to appease that. How, how do you manage that dynamic? You know. Adam, this is one of those places that, you know, I don't mean to be preachy or whatever, but this is one of those places where I think where you source things from uh, really, really makes a difference. And so, um, you know, I think knowing why I coach and knowing that um, I owe my best to each and every team that comes in and and uh, knowing that, like, hey, if the Lord has a great player for us, great. And if he has a better place for them somewhere else, great. You know, that, that's fine, too. So, like, I, I, I do not coach from a place of holding on to players or keeping players happy. I owe it to my team to put together the best team I can that season. And every season's different. And that somebody decides to leave because they didn't like this or someone decides to say, like, you know, I feel really comfortable letting that happen and, and, and letting them go. I, I think coaching from a place of trying to hang on to players is a really bad place to be coaching from, to be honest with you. That, that's great insight. TJ, I appreciate you so much. This was a very helpful episode. I know for coaches listening, trying to manage this dynamic, I know there's some takeaways they're going to take away from this episode. Listen, I am Adam. He is TJ. Together, we are the Hardwood Hustle. Until next time, we're out.